about half of all miscarriages are because of chromosome abnormalities. And I think the second that pregnancy test turns positive, that image of the child is there, you know, and will always be there. And I'll always walk with that baby in my life. And I think we as a culture tend to blame a miscarriage on a mother in a, in a certain capacity, whether we as mothers are kind of putting that on ourselves or whether we feel like people are doing this. There appears to be a lot of, you know, blaming. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories, Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. The prenatal testing is always an option, but it's always an option to decline it completely also. Seeking out genetic counseling before you do your testing can be helpful because your OB doesn't have time to go through all of these testing options in great detail. But you may choose things differently as if you knew kind of what it was you were choosing and what was being done. Janine Mash is a certified genetic counselor and the founder of San Francisco Genetic Counseling, a private practice genetic counseling service. She specializes in reproductive and prenatal genetic counseling, which means that pregnancy loss and trisomy specifically have come up a lot in her career. Janine is passionate about options counseling as it relates to pregnancy, making sure that patients are aware of the available testing options and are able to make informed decisions about the many and increasing number of testing options during pregnancy. Hi, Janine. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to do this interview with me. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start off by asking genetic counselors, what led you into the field of genetic counseling in the first place? Yeah, so I think um, I first learned of genetic counseling when I was in undergrad, when I was doing my undergrad. And at first, I was so focused on uh, being a doctor (laughs) that I didn't really think about it too much. But then as the years kind of went on, um, it seems like something that would fit my overall idea of lifestyle. I have, you know, I really like work-life balance and it felt like genetic counseling would give me that. And also it's really exciting and interesting. (laughs) So um, eventually I finally let the doctor thing go and decided (laughs) to go into genetic counseling. Yeah. Um, And you worked initially as a laboratory counselor, but then pretty quickly moved into prenatal where you've spent most of your career, right? So, you know, it's actually probably closer to almost half and half. So I spent a lot of time in lab. Um, So my very first job out of the bat was working for a cytogenetics laboratory, mainly reviewing array results and trying to decide if they were significant or not. Um, And then from there, I moved into more kind of the biotech sphere working for Natera. And, and that was kind of more of a mixed clinical and laboratory role. So I feel like each job has kind of been like a little bit of a step away from laboratory and closer to being more fully clinical, which is what I am now. Yeah. And Natera is a company that does testing, like non-invasive prenatal screening. Yeah. So they do now. They do. They're one of the companies that does non-invasive prenatal screening. And most people know them by the test name, Panorama. But of course, there's lots of other companies that do this testing too. When I worked for Natera, they were developing the test. So um, so they also do other testing for pre-implantation genetic screening and diagnosis. And that's the, those in um, products of conception. So miscarriage testing. And those are the 
test types that I worked with the most when I, when I was with them. Okay. Yeah. And now you work in, now you have your own private practice genetic yeah. counseling company in San Francisco. Yeah, I do. So, you know, kind of leveraging my background from fertility and then prenatal where I worked at, um, you know, where I worked with at Stanford, I kind of just noticed that there's a bit of a need for um, independent prenatal genetic counselors in our area mm-hmm. and also just a need for genetic counselors overall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, so you've been a genetic counselor for about 10 years now. Yeah. What are some of the patient stories that have really stuck with you? Yeah. So it's interesting that when I think back over the years, it's almost like patient groups that stick with me, you know, that like a collection of patients hmm. that fell into, into this category or to that category. And I think sometimes that's the nature of when you're working in fertility because you're with patients for such a short time. But sometimes it's a really long time if they're not getting pregnant mm-hmm. and and kind of the, you know, what's going on for them and that background, whether it's recurrent miscarriage or whether it's it's something else that that's happening. And we are recording this in advance of Trisomy Awareness Month. And I know we've we talked a little bit before the interview just about. Um, you know, trisomies is a common aneuploidy, which yeah. in turn is a common cause of miscarriage. And I like that's a patient group that comes up a lot in prenatal genetic counseling. It does. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I feel like sometimes we forget about it. We forget about its importance because we're so focused on thinking about the types of trisomies that babies are born with that we kind of forget sometimes about the impact that um, chromosome abnormalities, aneuploidies have on on um, on miscarriage and on fertility in general. So, you know, a really important reason why our fertility drops off as we age is because of chromosome abnormalities. They happen more frequently as we get older, which is part of the reason why we start to talk more about them as a person gets, gets older. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, um, you know, just their impact on what it means for a person who's had a miscarriage. So kind of one of the things like as, as I worked with patients, reviewing their PGS results all the time, their pre-implantation genetic screenings, so this is a test where we're taking a little bit of DNA from an embryo and we are um, checking it to see if there's chromosome problems there because we would, you know, when we were doing an IVF cycle, we want to work with embryos that are most likely to create a successful pregnancy. So that's the intent behind that testing. And as I worked with these results kind of day in, day out, I realized just how big of an impact aneuploidy has in our lives and just also how common it is. So this is something that's happening for everybody. It's something Mm -hmm. that's normal. And miscarriage is kind of an unfortunate byproduct of this normal process. So everybody is going to have some eggs in their lifetime that have chromosome problems. Everyone's going to have some sperm if they're male that have chromosome problems. And when an embryo is created from those, then the body has to deal with that some way. And the most Mm -hmm. common reaction to that is a miscarriage. Yeah. Yeah. And I like genetic counselor trivia, right? Like the most common trisomy naturally occurring is actually trisomy 16, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's right. That's right. I think yeah. it's um, 16, 21, and 22 that are the most common. Um, yeah. And Down syndrome, and that kind of actually does remind me of one of my patients that, that I had who had recurrent uh, pregnancies that miscarried due to trisomy 21. And it was really mm-hmm. tricky for them because we did other testing to see if there was a reason why this was happening for them. 
but it didn't appear so. Their chromosomes themselves were completely normal, so it didn't appear to be because of a balanced rearrangement or something else like that going on. For them, mm -hmm. it just kind of seemed fluky. And, um, and it's a really kind of tricky situation to be in where you're having this kind of test result come up over and over, but it's probably just bad luck for yeah. why that happened to them three times in this context. And that was really hard for them to understand and hard for them to wrap their head around. They really felt like something was, was going wrong for them. And in reality, it was probably just, just you know three situations that weren't that weren't great that happened by chance yeah and they were also older so i should point that out they were reaching mid 40s <laughs> um so so their chance for a embryo to be affected with an with a chromosome problem was a lot higher than it would have been had she been having children younger right yeah and then with every with every miscarriage then there's that process for the body to kind of reset to be able to for another pregnancy to happen right. and in the meantime you're getting older <laughs> right right so kind of the good news about this is that it just takes that one embryo that is normal so we have embryos that are abnormal and we're working in that context as we try to get pregnant but then we catch a good one and that doesn't mean so just because we have a miscarriage and just because that miscarriage is due to a chromosome abnormality it doesn't mean that the next pregnancy is not going to be successful right right so it kind of gives that that silver line and then and then the other aspect to this is just the kind of part of the grieving process of a miscarriage to know that this is not something we can control it's not something that anybody did there's really no blame there that you can attribute to why that miscarriage occurred it's a normal process our body's dealing with this other normal process in a way that that um, isn't fun and isn't nice and certainly yeah. is really difficult to go through, but there's nothing wrong with that process, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you, I mean, in your experience dealing with patients who had um, uh, embryos with chromosomal abnormalities, did they experience it really differently if they, if it was, if it, they learned about it from yeah. PGS related to IVF as opposed to like a natural pregnancy planned or, or unplanned without IVF? Right. So I think, I think a, a little bit of it depends on the person. And in our context, we were doing pretest counseling for everybody. So part of that counseling process was talking about how this is normal, how you're going to, like, we are going to have embryos that are going to test abnormal and that's okay. We expect it. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're a little bit prepared, <laughs> prepared to see those things. However, the patients who ended up just by luck that all their embryos were affected, they took it kind of hard, especially right. if they weren't there for necessarily fertility themselves. So patients who were, you know, maybe doing an IVF cycle because they carried a genetic, um, a disorder themselves, but then now had this outcome where we couldn't transfer anything. That was, that would be really, that was really rough for those, for those patients. It kind of came out of left field. They just didn't, didn't think it was going to be so difficult. And, right. Yeah. Whereas the patients who came in for IVF for fertility reasons in the first place probably came in with the expectation that you want to, you hopefully get a lot of eggs up front because you know that some of them won't be viable. Yeah, I think like it's, it's a different, you're coming to into it from a different um, kind of starting point, right? So people who are there for um, infertility reasons have already had a long road to get pregnant. And now this is the next step in the road. And they're still, you know, they're hopeful, but they're cautious. And they're kind of, it, it's a very different patient demographic than the patient who's walking in doing IVF because, um, 
you know, because they are trying to hope make their family in a different way because either they carry something themselves that they don't want to pass on to their children, like cystic fibrosis or, you know, some of these kind of major player diseases, um, or they're there for some other reason, you know, like sometimes it would happen for our LGBT couples who were there because that's how they needed to make their family, but then it took longer than they expected. Right. Yeah. So it's okay if I ask you about your own miscarriage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. So, and, you know, it was kind of a, a strange time. So I had, had my miscarriage while I was working for UCSF and while I was um, kind of already in this patient demographic, kind of working with fertility people. And I was, you know, not exactly happy, but thankful that I had this background knowledge while it came to be my turn to process mm-hmm. having my own miscarriage. So I lost my first pregnancy at seven weeks and and it was a blighted ovum and blighted ovums are almost always because of chromosome abnormalities. We didn't have testings on our pregnancy, so we'll never know if that's uh-huh. really what, what, what it was, but most likely it was, and it, it was kind of, you know, um, it was still definitely something that wasn't easy to go through. And, and I think the second that pregnancy test turns positive, that image of the child is there, you know, and will always be there. And I'll always walk with that baby in my life. But um, I knew that there was nothing that I did. And that there was nothing that I could pinpoint to it wasn't that coffee that I had, or that drink that I had or anything there. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, just nature, just the way it goes. And then we had another baby, you know, pretty quickly. We got pregnant pretty quickly thereafter and had our first daughter. So, yeah. Um, were you were you surprised? Like, was it harder for you to deal with that miscarriage than you would have thought, given all that you knew about just how common miscarriages are and the genetic basis behind many miscarriages? So I actually think it was a little bit easier. Um, and th- and this is kind of just in discussions with other people that I know as they process their own miscarriage or patients that I've had in the past as we're dealing, you know, with that outcome for them. Mm-hmm. But I think because it wasn't, I didn't have to feel like there was something wrong with me, which I think a lot of people feel. Uh-huh. And a lot of people feel like this is a blame. There's something there. And I think we as a culture tend to blame a miscarriage on a mother in a, in a certain capacity, whether we as mothers are kind of putting that on ourselves or whether we feel like people are doing this, there appears to be a lot of, you know, blaming that happens or guilt, guilt that you, you know, did have a little bit to drink in the beginning of your pregnancy. And, and even if when it's not, even when a miscarriage is occurring, not even because of a chromosome abnormality, if you are a you know, healthy, normal, <laughs> responsible parent, there's very little you could have done to change that outcome, period. Right. Even if it's not because of chromosome abnormalities. It's just the pregnancy that 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 wasn't gonna wasn't gonna work. And and this is kind of biology's way of of moving through that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you I mean have you found that in in discussing that with patients that that um just learning about the genetic basis is is helpful just because we so often want an explanation and want to have a, yeah. a why? <laughs> yeah. For things? I I think it is. I think I think there's kind of two things that are really that can be really helpful for people especially when we're um trying to find the causes of miscarriage. And this kind of falls into two camps also, because we have the patients who are having their first miscarriage and we don't generally test for first miscarriages. 
because they're really common. Mm -hmm. Lots of people have a miscarriage. And, you know, once again, kind of pointing to that normality of biology, we don't test because there's nothing really wrong yet, right? Like right. nothing's, it's not a problem. We just assume like the next pregnancy will probably be okay. Mm -hmm. But some people really need to test that pregnancy. They really need that answer that it just, it, it's, it's really difficult to process it without doing something. And that can be part of their grieving process or part of dealing with the miscarriage is to have that testing and to see, you know, what was the cause of it and to know that cause. Um, I think sometimes it's more helpful if the results come back with a chromosome abnormality, because then you can point to this really normal thing. We know what happened and now we can go forward. Yeah. Right. As opposed to just being um, in that group where it's like, well, <laughs> still, right, still can't right. really tell you still why. Still can't really tell. Yeah. And just for context, about half of all miscarriages are because of chromosome abnormalities. So it is by far the most, you know, the biggest piece of the pie, the biggest cause mm -hmm. of a miscarriage that's happening in the first trimester. Yeah. Right. But then the other 50% come from hundreds of different reasons. And most of them are completely out of our control right. as well. And not, yeah. not that well understood overall, I feel like. No, yeah. no. There's a lot of different, a lot of different things that we don't really understand the science behind a lot of it. Um, you know, it, it does get kind of tricky when you're in that normal group sometimes. But but it, when it's just your first miscarriage, it's kind of, you know, most people go on then to have successful second pregnancies mm -hmm. or third pregnancies, right? Right. Um, it can be a little different than, again, for patients who are in the recurrent miscarriage category. So this just keeps happening over and over. And now you just don't know why and you don't know what's going on. Um, and absolutely that's when testing starts to become indicated, right? If you're having your second and third, third is like the, the time when we definitely should be testing a miscarriage if we can. Right. Um, and, and that reminds me of one of the patients I had who, you know, had recurrent miscarriage. She was really having a hard time getting her doctor to do testing for whatever reason. And she actually like marched her sample, <laughs> marched her miscarriage tissue to our laboratory at Natera to do that testing testing because she was so she was looking for answers so much and needed that piece to happen yeah that she just kind of took charge and and brought it in which was not the normal that's not the normal way to get the <laughs> were you were you I mean did the did the laboratory accept the hand delivered sample you know we did and in some ways she kind of picked the right laboratory because a lot of um prenatal testing on miscarriage or a lot of testing on miscarriage samples require cell culture but the way that that laboratory does testing it's almost all on microwave and um and can be done on kind of really crummy samples so they're one of the few labs that can do testing on um preserved miscarriage tissue uh -huh. So she kind of, mar she, she marched it to the right laboratory that it could, could actually process that sample. Had it been in different circumstances, maybe they wouldn't have been able to accept it. But luckily we could, though it was a little bit of a like, okay, we have this and we don't have a referral from a doctor. So now what do or we Or like do? a requisition form or. Yeah, <laughs> we needed a rack. <laughs> like we still need a doctor to, to, you know, order the test. But I think she kind of managed to strong arm her physician. So yeah, <laughs> so we got that. and. And it, and it, you know, and it all went forward. Um, and I think for her, unfortunately, not fortunately or unfortunately, the results were, were normal also, but, um, yeah, but it was still a piece of information that then she could say, okay, this, 
is probably not the cause. There's something else going on. Right. And for the people who fall into the somewhere else camp, there's, you know, like sometimes it can just be we don't know. And sometimes there could be something functionally, physically going on. So maybe the fallopian tubes are blocked. And that's why these recurrent miscarriages are happening over and over. Or there's other other kind of more physiological reasons that we can then probe into and figure out and try to try to move forward with that knowledge. Yeah. Um, so and so screening for trisomies has been a common part of prenatal care for a really long time, but how that screening happens has changed over time. Um, overall, I think probably gotten more accurate and different clinics have used different strategies, like sometimes involving mm-hmm. ultrasounds, sometimes just a blood draw. Um, sequential screen, the quad screen, <laughs> and then now <laughs> non-invasive prenatal screening, um, like the kind of testing that Natera and other companies do has kind of seen, well, I'm in New York, so, and you're in San Francisco, so I don't know how much this is representative of the, of the country at large, but seems to be taking over if, if it hasn't already taken over as being the predominant um, screening yeah. for trisomy. So I'm wondering just like, how have you seen those changes happen and how have you seen those changes impact patients for, for better and for worse? I think, yeah. I think when we were talking before this interview, you mentioned, um, you, you refer to like with pre-test genetic counseling, you call it like options counseling, which I, yeah. I really like that term. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and California works a little bit differently. I feel like than other states in the country, because California has for a very long time, had its own has its own state run prenatal screening testing um, <laughs> program and and it's part of why genetic counseling I feel like you know prenatal genetic counseling is pretty well developed in California most clinics are using genetic counselors all the time there's you know a, a clear referral protocol for when we use genetic counseling time and when we don't but it's definitely more so we get a lot more involved in the normal stuff than the not so normal stuff like you do in other states. I think in other states, people are mainly reacting to something that's happened. And that's when a genetic counselor gets pulled in. Mm -hmm. So our state on a whole works really differently than it might in other states, just because we have the serum screening um, program that every pregnant woman is allowed to opt into. Um, And so because of that, I think we still use the serum screen more than we might than other states might as well. So it might be very different in New York okay. than it would be in California, only I, for the fact that like there's already this gateway in and that gateway starts with serum screening. OK, I think yeah. I think in New York, you know, I'm not working in a like a prenatal clinic now, but I think my impression is overall it's just like we just do everything <laughs> or both yeah. or it's it all becomes an yeah. option because, yeah, even though it's somewhat redundant, there's other things that serum screening provides right. that newer testing doesn't provide so exactly and so in some ways it's kind of the I I feel like it's almost to the point where we use serum screening Um, it was meant to be a good test for screening for down syndrome but now in some ways we're using it for other information for for other things that can be going on in the pregnancy Mm -hmm. like the overall health of the pregnancy sometimes can be assessed using the integrated screen and the in the quad screen in the second trimester right um, but definitely lots and lots of people do NIPS, the non-invasive prenatal testing. And so this is where, this is a test where we're taking mom's blood. So it's not invasive to the baby. And from that sample of mom's blood, we can find parts of baby's blood inside. And those fractions, we call them fetal fractions that can tell us how likely a baby is going to be affected with certain genetic conditions or not. And it's a lot more powerful, a lot more um, sensitive than the previous screenings where we're just looking at the proteins that are created by the pregnancy. 
Um, but it's definitely changed things <laughs> quite a lot in how screening's done and how people, um, what choices they're making as they move through their prenatal testing. I think I remember when when this testing was new, I think the acronym that people were first using was NIPD for diagnostic, and then that switched yeah. to NIPT for testing, and now it's kind of switched over the S for screening to try to like yeah. repeatedly like emphasize more that it is still just a really good screening test. Really good screen, <laughs> yeah. And and it is a little bit of a tricky thing because I think, um, so if a, if a person has a negative um, NAPS screen, it's 99% likely that that baby is not affected with the condition, right? And and somewhat close to if, it, if that screen is positive, it's pretty darn likely that the baby does actually have um, the condition. But, but it, it's still a screen. And yeah, it depends a little a bit on which condition as well as what risk exactly. category the, patter- the patient was in to begin with, like age, for right. instance, right? Exactly. And I think what's kind of tricky sometimes with NAPS is that they keep adding on extra diseases. So initially we started with Down syndrome, trisomy 21, and that's actually a really good test for trisomy 21. Like NAPS screens Down syndrome really, really well. But then companies started to add on some other things. So then we added on trisomy 18, which most laboratories do a great job of screening for that condition also, and trisomy 13, which some tests do a better job of than others, but they all do a much, but well, <laughs> not really screened for it all in the prenatal screen. So, you know, so it is a much better test there. Uh-huh. Um, but, but now it's quickly kind of added on some other, some other options as well. So you can choose whether you want to have sex chromosome aneuploidies to be screened for. So these are conditions where somebody or a baby's either missing an X chromosome or has an extra X chromosome or an extra Y chromosome. And then that baby is affected with, with these specific conditions, depending on what, how many extra chromosomes they have. Um, but those diseases are really, um, you know, in comparison to Down syndrome, they are um, not that bad, for lack of a better word. <laughs> you know, yeah. They say they're, they, they're more of a variation on normal than mm-hmm. they are a disease state itself, right? So a lot of people go their entire lives not knowing that they have an extra X chromosome or an extra Y chromosome. Right. Um, most people with Turner syndrome do know that they have that when they're missing the X chromosome. But um, so these tests now screen for those. So that's kind of in some ways um, not so much muddied the waters, but it leaves clinicians wondering, is this a good use of this test? Is this something we really need to be doing? Because it's not really telling us something that is um, an obviously serious, an obviously exactly. serious medical issue. <laughs> issue, exactly, exactly. So a lot of these kids have an increased risk for certain things. Like there's an increased risk maybe that they'll have a heart disease or have a, um, you know, mental health issue or kind of these other things, but they're not going to have that. Mm-hmm. There's not a direct clear line like your baby's going to be affected with, with this like there is with the other types of trisomy. Right. And then now they've also added in the micro deletions there, um, which sometimes I feel like we're kind of taking this really good screen. So, you know, NAPS was created to kind of fix the problems that we had with serum screening, mm-hmm. which was a high false positive rate, right? So with these screens, you know, with serum screening, your test results come back, you're in the screen positive category, which generally means that your risk for Down syndrome is higher than one in 200. 
but that's still a pretty small overall risk. And we scare the pants off a lot of people who don't have babies with Down syndrome. I remember um, I remember when this was uh, this was coming out just as I was leaving working full time in prenatal and it uh-huh. hadn't yet been validated in lower risk women like under 35. Right. Um, right. I bet people were using it anyway or talking about using it and kind of debating. And I was kind of I was like, well, yeah. you know, like. If I have like fewer, <laughs> it's still a screening test. If I have fewer women right. sobbing outside my office door, yeah, um, yeah. that's that's got to be better for patients. But right, right. And I've always been in the camp that you know I don't feel like age should play that much into it necessarily um, because you know age definitely affects the positive predictive value. So this is the statistic that we talk about where. Um, the chance that when you get a positive result back, so you get a positive screen, the screen is saying, you know, the chance this baby's affected with Down syndrome is higher than average mm-hmm. um, or is high, period, for NAPT, it's just high. Um, you know, what's the chance that baby is actually affected? So that's what positive predictive value is defining. So I have a positive test. How likely is it my baby really has this condition? Um, and depending if you're really young, that, that PP, that positive predictive value is lower than if you were in your forties, but it's still probably better than the serum screen overall. Um, I think where things are getting a little bit tricky is that, so they're, the companies that are doing this testing, um, are kind of competing with each other, it feels like, and they're adding more diseases onto the screen. Mm -hmm. And as they do that, the chance that your test result is coming back with something positive is getting higher and higher, but the utility of that result is getting lower and lower. So I feel like we're almost taking a really good test and making it less good. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I kind of feel like we're re-engineering the problems back to the problems that we had yeah. with serum screening on a whole where we're kind of scaring people and then that result turns out not to be true. And there seems to be a dynamic in medicine i think that i think with genetic counselors and non-genetics providers too where once we have a test available it becomes hard not to offer it (laughs) yes Um, it does yeah and then and i think that's um you know there's certain patient populations where that's more that's trickier than other areas and san francisco is definitely an area where people are well informed and um are high consumers of the, kind of everything that's the out there. Newest, right? The newest and the greatest or the newest. Exactly. So newest, so it must exactly. be the greatest. <laughs> the newest and it must be the greatest or, but it's available. So I should be able to have that. And, and then you have to kind of talk them either, you know, talk them through that process to see if that's that something they really want or not. And this is where options counseling, I think it's really important is that we now have prenatal tests and we have lots of prenatal tests. We have lots of different ways of kind of executing these tests. And this is also where prenatal screening um, and pregnancy on a whole is different, I feel like, than other types of testing in medicine. Mm -hmm. Because just about every prenatal test that we do is an option that people can ask for. So it is legitimate if a 25-year-old woman asks for an amniocentesis because she just has to know, right? That's part of our guidelines right now, Mm -hmm. that that test should be offered to her. And she can do that if she really wants to. And the flip side is it's totally appropriate for a 44-year-old to decline any sort of screening whatsoever because these are our choices, Mm -hmm. right? And prenatal screening is actually an option that people can choose these tests and whether they want to do them or not and and in kind of what order to a degree. Um, The flip side to that, though, is that um, the prenatal testing is always an option. 
but it's always an option to decline it completely also. So knowing what these options are and how you wanna use them and whether you wanna use them, I think can be really important as you're going through your pregnancy or trying to decide on um, you know, getting ready for your pregnancy to kind of think through these things and figure out what it is, what information do you want and what's important to you and what are you gonna do with that information? Yeah, and I mean, even though in principle, these are options and these have always been options. I think in a busy clinic setting, more often it's presented to patients as, as now yeah. we're going to do this test. <laughs> um, right, right. Yeah. I used to, I used to hear, you know, from, you know, friends or family members pregnant, like, oh, you know, like next time or this time they did the Down syndrome test or the Down syndrome right. test or it came back normal. And it's like, well, first of all, it's not a Down syndrome test. And I never heard anyone said that, <laughs> you know, the doctor talked, asked them like if they wanted that done <laughs> in the first place, it was just kind of done. But now right. with the, the non-invasive right. prenatal screening, then the other part to that is it's I, now I hear people say like, oh, that's when you get to find out the gender and not really right. thinking of it yeah. as a medical test. Yeah. And or like they don't really want yeah. the information about they don't want to screen for Down syndrome and they wouldn't necessarily terminate or they don't want that information advanced, but they want to know the gender. So they're going to do it anyway. And it all comes together. Right. right. And this is also where, you know, um, Seeking out genetic counseling before you do your testing can be helpful because your OB doesn't have time to go through all of these testing options in great detail. But you may choose things differently as if you knew kind of what it was you were choosing and what was being done. Yeah. And a little off the topic of uh, trisomies, but still on the topic of prenatal counseling and all of the many options and more confusion out there is just expanded carrier screening. I know when yeah. I was in school, it was still, there were some panels if you had, were of Ashkenazi ancestry, but otherwise sure. it was just kind of sticking to more standard guideline recommended carrier screening. Whereas now yeah. you can get a panel for like 80 yeah. recessive conditions or 200 yeah. or 280. And again, it seems like the labs kind of compete on like, well, we have five more conditions. <laughs> right. right. And they absolutely do compete. And it's interesting because, you know, at UCSF and at Stanford, where I worked, it still is very much the recommended diseases that are being done most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, now, um, and I think there's a lot of you know, we should really pay attention to those conditions and make sure that those are being screened for and that we're not missing those. I'm actually kind of a fan of expanded carrier screening, but more in the idea that um, more on the side of the fact that America on a whole is very, very diverse and we have very diverse relationships. Mm -hmm. And the number of people that I've had who had a surprise ethnicity in their background is actually pretty high, <laughs> you know, where they don't look like that ethnicity. So, you know, a, a patient who has red hair and green eyes who with a Japanese grandparent, mm -hmm. you know, like that's happened. And, and especially for the African-American community where a significant number of African-Americans are white, but nobody's seeing their whiteness in the office because we're so focused on the black part and on the sickle cell part, right? That mm -hmm. we're missing the cystic fibrosis part. So that's where I feel like carrier screening, the expanded panels can be really helpful because you're kind of doing the same thing for everybody at the same exact cost. The trouble though, is that the workload for a clinic can get very high if you're doing all these different conditions because the carrier frequency for those patients, like it's more likely that you're gonna find a carrier and it's a lot of work yeah. when someone's a carrier when their partner is very unlikely to be a carrier of the same disease. So, you know, generally, if I'm using an expanded carrier screening test, I encourage both of the patient and the partner and the couple to take it at the same time. Yeah. So that way we can counsel on the real result 
and not on, um, not on, you know, not have to go through the anxiety of like want to use the carrier. Although I feel like and that's now we have to do the other testing. Yeah. Although I feel that's that's also like that's what that's what the labs preach <laughs> because they want to have yeah. they want to get twice as many tests in the door. Like that's they a do. it's like a winning business so, strategy. <laughs> Yeah, but it isn't and isn't. So what I've noticed is in practice. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always offered kind of the standard or, you know, and, and especially in, in fertility, we kind of always offered the standard panel. And then if you really wanted to, you could do everything. Uh -huh. And we kind of would, you know, say, but everything means you both have to do it. So then there's a cost barrier there a little bit. Uh -huh. And in practice, most people end up kind of sticking with the recommended. I think there's there's a lot of people who want everything, but there's a lot of people who just want kind of the, the basic standard. But I do think that the smaller the smaller panels versus the extended carrier panels should probably be a pan-ethnic panel mm -hmm. in the United States and Canada, in these countries where our populations are not um, as clear-cut as they might be in Europe, right? Like, I think we are doing disservice to our patients just kind of, I think most people who have a new patient coming into their office aren't asking them what their ethnicities are mm -hmm. to make sure that the right carrier screening is being done. And I think we're missing people. Yeah. I guess with um, the, you know, like the stories of, you know, like sperm donors and all of the, yeah. all of the unexpected half siblings, <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> like that could be another reason that we see more cases of like, you know, like surprise consanguinity come up where I guess an expanded carrier screening panel might, might be more helpful than it would have been in the past also. Yeah, yeah. No, you know those cases are probably still pretty rare overall, but absolutely. But yeah, I can see, I can see that being something that might matter. <laughs> um, when we we uh, like lobbying and for genetic counselor licensure in New York, like a, maybe two years ago or something, I was like very uh -huh. surprised that the New York representative that was her concern that she was really fixated on was like the chance of like these half siblings. And I was just like, Oh, there's so many things to worry about that one. It'd like really not cross my mind as like a top, right. top concern right. priority. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. But, well, and I think with the ancestry testing too, some of this is getting a little bit more into the open. Yeah. Um. <laughs> totally. Yeah. What do you wish that women and their partners knew about pregnancy loss and trisomies, just common misconceptions that you've seen come up a lot that might make it easier for people to, to deal with this? Yeah. So I think, um, I think what I wish people knew and what they would focus in kind of going into a pregnancy period is that we do a lot of, um, you have to get it right and you have to do all this stuff in your pregnancy. And if you make a misstep, then that's on you. And that's why you might have a bad outcome. We have that way of thinking. And in reality, that's just completely not true, right? So, um, like a lot of things are normal biological processes and also outside of our control, plus true randomness. <laughs> right, right. But also, like, you know, whether you ate sushi or not, or whether you, you know, had a drink when you didn't know you were pregnant, or, or all these things that are, um, that are happening, we get really fixated on this minutia when it's probably moving the bar, you know, not at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like in pregnancy loss, those feelings become right at the top, right? They build and they fester. And, and so what I want people to know about pregnancy loss is it, of course, is a really, really difficult thing to go through. 
but it's a normal part of pregnancy. It's a normal part of reproduction. It's probably a better way to say it. So it's not so much a normal part of pregnancy, but it's a normal part of the experience people have when they're on the path to having children, right? Mm-hmm. Like this yeah. is something that a lot of us go through. And and we don't have to feel ashamed about it or worried that we did something because there's it's probably not anything that somebody did. It's just the way that pregnancy went. Yeah. Um, and how how do you think um, genetic counseling options counseling can benefit people who've either already experienced a pregnancy loss or planning pregnancy? Um, you already talked that about that a little bit with options counseling, right. but also just what would you say to someone who's listening who's thinking about seeking out genetic counseling but kind of hesitating, like not really sure it's worth it, or maybe like they'll wait, or they're not sure like what yeah. what the benefit would actually be. Yeah, I think it's, a, you know, it's probably a little bit easier for people who may have experienced a pregnancy loss going into it the next time, because you're a little more fearful, you're kind of burned. And, and even in my own experience, that first pregnancy, man, it felt so good. And then the subsequent pregnancies, I now have three children. So I've had four pregnancy total. And they're all like, it's never felt like that first time, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so obviously, you know, genetic counseling can help you kind of talk through those processes that we can talk about the specific risks. And when you have your actual numbers, what your chances are of having a, another pregnancy that's affected or a bad outcome or something like that, and you're part of that decision-making process, you get to be an active person in your own healthcare, And that can be really empowering. And it can go a long way to... Um, kind of dealing with the feelings that you're having surrounded the previous pregnancy loss. And I think the other part to that too is just that, you know, information is power, knowledge is power. We, you know, we tend to be researchers in our culture now. We tend to look at reviews and look at all these things. And and having that information going into a pregnancy is, you know, kind of feels a little bit more standard. <laughs> like, of course we should figure out what our options are and figure out what these things are before going into our pregnancy or, you know, going into a new pregnancy so that we are better able to make good decisions. Well, thanks so much for talking with me and we'll include your website in our show notes. Um, So San Francisco Genetic Counseling, and you actually also recently joined the Great Genetics Network of Genetic Counselors. So if people want to book an appointment with you, they can also go to our website, find your profile, and we'll include a link to your booking calendar uh, on our website in the show notes also. Great. Thank you so much. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendation.